Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us safely together. And please be with those who are still coming. And as this summer is drawing close to the end, uh, we also see the end approaching as we finish our last few studies here. But Lord, help us to remember the things that we've learned and to use it and share it with others. And especially this coming quarter as we study the book of Daniel in our um, Sabbath school quarterly, help us to be able to um, share this knowledge and inspire others with it. Please guide us tonight with your spirit as we dive into Daniel chapter 9 and to look at some very important things tonight. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, just a quick question. How many of you were here for the study last week? Eric was, Kari was. Okay, so there's three of us. Four of us, including me. Let's have a quick review of what we've covered in Daniel chapter 9 so far. Basically, last week, um, in our introduction to chapter 9, the main burden of what we wanted to establish was the connection between chapter 8 and chapter 9. This is very critical uh, for this reason. The 2300 days is a time prophecy the time prophecy is no good unless there's a beginning date. So, chapter 8, obviously, we didn't see any beginning date for the prophecy. So we go to chapter 9. And in order for us to establish that the beginning date is found in chapter 9, we must be able to prove that chapter 8 and 9 is somehow integrally related and connected and that they need to be one and the same flow of thought. So, what we did was we analyzed a few things. First, at the end of chapter 8, we see the reaction or what was going through the mind of Daniel. And uh, we see that Daniel heard or saw this vision and prophecy of all of this persecution that would come upon God's people. And then, all of a sudden, at the end, it says, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed in answer to the question that was asked, how long will God's people in the sanctuary be trodden underfoot? So in Daniel's mind, we assume that he was looking into the future 2,300 years into the future and thinking, wow, that's a long time before God's people will be restored. And with that, we went to chapter 9. In chapter 9, we looked at it and we recognized that the majority of the chapter was dedicated to Daniel's prayer. And Daniel's prayer, most of the time, we... We say, wow, we, we can read this prayer in less than a minute. And it says that the angel Gabriel said, I, com- I, I was commanded at the beginning of your supplications to come answer your prayer. And then we sort of say, wow, Gabriel can fly really fast. And then we go on. But, you know, there's a reason why this prayer is recorded in all of its length and breadth and entirety. This, this prayer was very simple in, its, in terms of its theme. If you read it, and I encourage you uh, to do it if you haven't, the whole prayer basically is a prayer of confession, um, repentance, and also for forgiveness. Daniel is praying on behalf of his people. He looked at the prophecies found in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29 saying, this 
Babylonian captivity should last only 70 years. We're coming close to the end of the 70 years. God, please forgive us. We have turned away from you. We've been uh, sinning. We are transgressing against you. We are not obeying you. Please, Lord, for the sake of your name's glory and honor, forgive us and turn your face again to your people. Don't leave us to destruction. It was this prayer of supplication in, so to say, in sackcloth and ashes for God's people. And um, he is mentioning all this curse that fell upon us, you know, according to the law of Moses. Forgive us, Lord, we have turned away from you, and so on and so forth. So we can see that the burden on Daniel's heart is the restoration of God's people. Putting that together with chapter 8, it makes perfect sense. Because he heard, this king of fierce countenance is coming, he will destroy God's people. And all of of these atrocious things takes place in um, Deuteronomy 28. At where Moses lays it all out. So, we see the prayer of Daniel reflecting the, the thoughts in his heart. And then, we see, well, obviously, first of all, we obviously see that this is a misunderstanding on Daniel's part, based on our you know, further knowledge. But then Gabriel comes. And it says, Gabriel, in verse 23, let's just look at verse 23 in chapter 9. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter, and consider the vision. And we mentioned that the angel Gabriel, the only other chapter that she is mentioned, or he is mentioned, is um, in chapter 8. That's the only other place Gabriel is mentioned in the book of Daniel. And in chapter 8, we mentioned that Gabriel came with a specific mission, you know, the, the God told the angel Gabriel, make him understand. And then at the end of the chapter, in chapter 8, we see Daniel said, you know, he got sick, he fainted, he was astonished, he was troubled in his heart, but none understood it. So, the angel Gabriel basically didn't finish his mission. You can say that. So now, he needs to finish his mission. There's another connecting point. Angel Gabriel only appears in these two chapters. He needs to finish his mission and also... Daniel's misunderstanding must be cleared up. And, let me just add this note. And this is the main burden of our study tonight. And it is that the 2300 day prophecy would be meaningless without the 70 weeks. Not just, the, not just talking about the be- beginning date, as important as that is. The beginning date without it, you know, 2300 days in, you know, in what? You know, you don't know when it is. Anybody can say when, whatever date. But we will see, after tonight's study, that the actual 70-week prophecy, which is found in chapter 9, it is absolutely critical in order for what the 2300-day prophecy says will happen to take place. So in other words, it's almost like you cannot have a 2300 days if you did not have a 70 weeks and we're going to explain that more so that is our brief review from last week and um, let's begin in chapter 9 in verse 24 can someone read verse 24 
It says here, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Now, seventy weeks. In Bible prophecy, one day represents... One prophetic day represents one literal year. So, seventy weeks, that represents 490 days or 490 years. Literal years. Now, what is the significance of that? Um, we're going to look at the words of Christ real quickly. Can someone read Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22? Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. Then Peter, then Peter to him and said, Lord, how So Peter asked the question, if, some, if a brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Wow, that's a long time. Many, many times. But Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Now, how many times is that, literally speaking? 490 times. Now, you know, obviously Jesus is not saying you keep tally marks, you know, forgive this person, I forgave this person 480 times, huh? Ten times left and... You're out, you know. It's not like that. But this is, this is very key because in the, in the Hebrew mind, they're familiar with Daniel chapter 9. It's very, very important to them. And we're going to explain why in a second. So when Jesus said, no, you forgive them four, uh, 70 times 7, which ends up being 490 times. Immediately in the mind of Peter, he should have thought, maybe he didn't, but he should have thought, God gave his people... 70 weeks or 490 years of forgiveness this is a time that God is sort of saying this is to make right your wrongs and you know that's exactly what the verse says but the, the whole concept of 70 times 7 is the concept of forgiveness and the concept of restitution and mercy so 70 weeks 490 times of forgiveness, 490 years of forgiveness, so to say, are determined upon thy people. Now, this is an important word. Determined. Determined, what, what does that word mean? Cut off. Well, you know, I looked it up in, um, in Strong's Concordance. That's, really, that's not what Strong's Concordance says. It's um, strange, but it says... Uh, Divided or marked out. So, same meaning, but it didn't say cut out or cut off. But I have a more reliable source that I'll read in a second. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. So, this is, in a nutshell, this is what's happening. Seventy weeks, based on Jesus' commentary in the future, we see this 70 or 490 years period of, so to say, forgiveness that is cut off or marked out for your people and your holy city. So this is specifically talking about the Jewish people, Jerusalem, Israel. Now let me read this. This found in Great Controversy, page 326, the second paragraph. This is sort of long, so um, bear with me. I'll try to read uh, clearly. The angel had been sent to Daniel for the express purpose of explaining to him the point which he had failed to understand in the vision of the 8th chapter. 
the statement relative to time unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. After bidding Daniel understand the matter and consider the vision, the very first words of the angels are, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Here, the word translated determined literally signifies cut off. Seventy weeks, representing 490 years, are declared by the angel to be cut off, especially pertaining to the Jews. But from what were they cut off? As the 2300 days was the only period of time mentioned in chapter 8, it must be the period from which the 70 weeks were cut off. The 70 weeks must therefore be a part of the 2300 days and the two periods must begin together. The 70 weeks were declared by the angel to date from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. If the date of this commandment could be found, then the starting point for the great period of the 2300 days would be ascertained. Very simple. That simple statement basically explains chapter 9. Anyhow, let's break this down a little bit more. So, that gives us overview. We know that's what we're shooting for. That's what's going to take place. So, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Set apart, marked out for the Jewish people to, to do what? Following in verse 24 is a list of six things. Six things that is to be done within this period of 490 years. Number one, to finish the transgression. To finish the transgression. Now, what is transgression? 1 John 3, 4, for sin is the transgression of the law. Transgression simply, you can say, is sin. But, specifically, it's simply ju it just says to finish the transgression. It doesn't say to finish transgressions. It's a definite article. It's like the angel is talking about something in particular. So let's look back in chapter 9 and we can see, based on the prayer of Daniel, because this can be a couple things, you can think of it in several ways, several different perspectives. This prophecy, you can say, you can look at it in um, perspective of just studying this prophecy by itself, although that's not the complete picture. Or you can see that this prophecy is a continuation, it's an addendum to chapter 8. Or you can see it as the answer to Daniel's prayer. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 10 and 11. Can someone read that for us? Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God walking in laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. It's it's not, you know, one specific sin, but it just simply says, We have not obeyed the Lord our God. We have not listened to the prophets and we have not obeyed his voice and this curse is being poured out upon us. So, naturally, to finish the transgression, reversing it, it means that they are now to obey the, Lord, uh, the voice of the Lord their God, to walk in his laws, to listen to his servants, the prophets, and to obey his voice. So, these are the things that need to take place 
within this 490 year period. This is the time set out to make those things right. Now we all understood that. And also in Daniel chapter 8, you remember verse 23. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And we, we discussed that those transgressors is talking about God's people. And here in chapter 9, God is saying, is, is, you can put it this way, He is laying down the condition. The king of fierce countenance does not have to just lay waste to the kingdom of Israel. He does not have to do that if God's people will obey and listen to His voice, as Moses promised in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, I believe. So number one, to finish the transgression, to come back to God, to repent, to turn back with Him, obey His voice, listen to His prophets, and so forth. Number two, and to make an end of sins. This is very interesting. It sounds like it's saying the exact same thing, to make an end of sins. And sure, that, you know, that's what it's saying. But also, the word sins there, that's sins. I looked up the definition of the word. It can be translated several ways. One of the ways is sin offerings. And I believe some translations of the Bible actually renders it to make an end end of sin offerings. And that makes very, a very important point. And that is that this 490 years is supposed to bring about the end or the culmination of sin offerings, which is talking about the sanctuary service. The lambs, the bullocks, the goats, all of those sanctuary services. To make an end of sin offerings as well as to make an end of sins. But, keep that in mind, there's a key that makes it all make sense. Because right now, if you just look at it, sort of make an end of sin offerings. Hmm. But in Daniel's mind, you will see that this is very exciting. We'll come back to that. And next, number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, this is, this is particularly interesting. Because it says, to make reconciliation for iniquity. So you reconcile. You reconcile those things that you have done wrong in the past, but then you bring in everlasting righteousness. And righteousness is right doing. And this is very interesting because this is the two parts. This is the two parts that is related to salvation. You reconcile, you're reconciled from God, with God from all of your previous, previous grievances, sins, iniquities. And then you bring in everlasting righteousness. But both of these things can only happen by faith. But more importantly, by faith in Jesus Christ. And th all of this is leading up to a very critical point. And we're coming, to, we're coming to that. And then number five, to seal up the vision and the prophecy. This, right here, it, you see another connection chapter 8. Chapter 8, the vision, that's the only vision in Daniel that's talked about being sealed. And this is already, we established, it's connected with chapter 8. Chapter 9 and chapter 8 are connected. The angel Gabriel is dealing with both issues at the same time. And the seal up the vision and prophecy. Now, that might be weird, like, but isn't the prophecy already sealed up? We're going to come back to that too. And lastly, number 6, this is the big point. And Daniel probably got very, very excited when he heard this. And it says, to anoint the most holy. 
to anoint the most holy. This 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 phrase in the mind of Daniel probably set sirens, alarms, streamers, whatever. Because this to him is what his whole life for his whole life, actually for the history of the whole Israel nation, they've been waiting for the Messiah. And some people, I believe even in the book um, by Uriah Smith, uh, Daniel and the Revelation, he, uh, he mentions that this is the anointing of the heavenly sanctuary. However, if you look in the Desire of Ages, she quotes this, uh, Ellen White quotes this verse at the time of Christ's baptism. So the anointing of the Most Holy primarily is dealing with the anointing or the heralding, the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah, the name simply means the anointed. And the, to anoint the most holy simply represents the baptism of Christ. When he was anointed, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that instituted his ministry on earth, the three and a half years. Now, I already mentioned number six is the key. Now let's go back. So this 70-week prophecy is a time set apart for the holy nation of Israel for the, um, to make end of transgressions and so forth. But it is to bring in the Messiah, to anoint the Most Holy. And to anoint the Most Holy means that the antitype of all of the sin offerings all of the sanctuary services has been pointing to Jesus Christ. There have been a shadow of things to come. And now Christ, in the brightness of the noonday sun, in the real body, in the real person that all of those things have represented, but imperfectly, He is now here. So the sin offerings can be taken away. Those can be ended. And also to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, for forgiveness of previous sins, for the power to live a transformed and, and um, spirit-filled life now. Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin so that we can be reconciled from all of our previous iniquities, but He also lived the example of, of human being in sinful human flesh so that we have the example to live as He lived. And then He gave us the promise of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live and to bring in everlasting righteousness. And now, number five, it says, to seal up the vision and the prophecy. Now, let me just say this. I already mentioned that this is a critical point in terms of the 2300 days. This vision of the 70 weeks, or we can say this messianic prophecy of prof uh, prof prophesying when Jesus will come, if this prophecy never took place, if Jesus never came, if He never lived as a man, if He never died for the penalty of sin, there would be no meaning to the 2300 days. The investigative judgment would be absolutely pointless because the means by which God's people can be justified and sanctified and the power to enable them to stand in the judgment would not even be there. And this is very important because... All of these things as listed in, 20, in, in, in verse 24, they are foreshadowing not just when Jesus comes, but even farther than that, for when the 2300 days will end and the investigative judgment will begin. So this, these prophecies, you can't miss it. They are one. They are together. Without one, there's no point for the other. 
Also, Ellen White, she says, for those of you who are there Friday night or Sabbath morning, I don't remember which, at Avent Hope, she says that the ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary as our mediator, as our high priest, is just as important as a sacrifice on the cross. You can't say one is more important than the other. And just like what she said, Daniel chapter 8 and 9, chapter 9 is talking about the end of the 70 weeks, his first advent, his pardon on the cross for us, the means for our pardon on the cross, as well as chapter 8, the beginning of the investigative judgment which foreshadows his final act of mercy as our high priest. Both are essential. Both are critical to our salvation. So, 70 weeks. Verse 24. All right. There we have it. Let's, let's go on to verse 25. Now, we've established 70 weeks, but now we need to figure out when does the 70 weeks begin. And as we saw in Great Controversy, if we can figure out when the 70 weeks begin, then we can tell when the 2300 days begins. So, in verse 25, that gives us the answer. Can someone read that verse for us? Now this verse is filled with, with history and um, in fact the Bible has dedicated two books. You can read the entire books of Ezra and Nehemiah to uh, better understand this one verse. So uh, I'll let you do that on your own. But let's just go through it briefly. 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. So the beginning date takes place at the issuing of the decree to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem. Even in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there are several decrees that were given. And in fact, I believe there are four. However, there is only one that we can use to establish this date. And how do we know which one? Well, this verse is telling us that we, uh, that the decree is to restore and to rebuild. So rebuilding Jerusalem necessitates a restoring of, well, we know the temple must be restored, we know the walls must be restored, and it even says here, the wall and the streets. So specifically, we know for sure the temple, the walls, and the streets must be rebuilt. But more than that, to restore Jerusalem, it is not just talking about physical structures and infrastructures and those type of things. It's talking about institution of their, their civil organizations. Their, uh, Uriah Smith uses the word polity. I've never heard that word used before, but the political side of things, the civil laws, and you can say their self-government, those things must be reinstituted as well. And there's only one prophecy, or one decree, I should say, that meets that criteria, and that is the decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra. You can read this in Ezra chapter 7. And if you want to find the, the Bible verses and the dates and what the other decrees entail, you can talk to me later. I'm running out of time here. But that decree took place in 457 B.C. That's a very important date. 457 B.C. What's the date? 457 B.C. Now, this is very important because it is the beginning date for the 70 weeks 
as well as the beginning date of the 2300 days. Very, very important. So 457. I don't want to spend too much time on that because you can, you can study this on your own. There are plenty of sources. I want to deal with some other things that perhaps we don't normally talk about. And so verse 25, the decree at 457 BC to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, or seven weeks and then 62 weeks. Putting that together, it is 69 weeks. Good, all you mathematicians. And the wall, or the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. I'm not going to talk too much about this, um, but the whole book, or not the whole book, but a great portion of the book of Nehemiah talks about this. Sam Ballot and Tobiah coming and just harassing God's people. They had to build with one hand, with a trowel in one hand, the sword in the other. All right. Let's move on. Verse 26, go in two weeks, or after the 62 weeks, which is actually after 69 weeks from the beginning of the prophecy, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war desolation, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. These two verses are mouthful. They are rather hard to really, you know, divide up to say this is talking about this, this is talking about this. But let me just perhaps make it a little bit easier. Verse 26 and 27, they are not chronologically one after another. 26 and 27 is... In the Hebrew mind, you have to understand that they think this way and they write this way. They, they, they make a statement and then they repeat it. Sometimes they repeat it to enlarge it in the same sense or they re repeat it in the opposite, in the negative of what they just said. So 26 and 27, let's look at it instead of 1 and 2. Let's look at it parallel, side by side, together. Because then it will help us to better understand what it's talking about. So 26, and after three score and two weeks, after 69 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. Messiah be cut off. Now that word, cut off. Where have we heard that before? In the, in the context of the history of the Israel nation, when are people cut off? Not quite. There's a specific time, a specific day. On the Day of Atonement. Exactly right. On the Day of Atonement, you can read in Leviticus, Leviticus 23, verse 29, the day that God set aside for purification of the camp. I don't want to get too far into this, but let me just say this. For those who are faithful and obedient and they afflict their souls, they do no work, they, they make restitution with God on that day, they are restored, they are pure, and they are cleaned. However, for the soul that does not afflict his, himself or afflict his soul and does not obey the, the will of God as appointed on that day, he is said to be cut off. Cut off. Now, this is the same Hebrew word that describes the Messiah. 
You see, the, the word cut off, it simply means removed forever. Everlasting destruction. At the end of time, when, when the beast, the false prophet, and Satan himself, the dragon, cast in the lake of fire, that is called being cut off, you can say. The final cutting off. And that is what Jesus, the Messiah, did for us. He's not, he didn't just die. He didn't just go into the grave knowing that he will come out again. He was cut off. And in the mind of the Hebrew, that, that's like, that's, that's the worst possible punishment. is to be cut off forever. And the Messiah was cut off, suffering the second death for those who he came to save. And let's look at verse 27 now. So he was cut off, but not for himself. In verse 27, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So, the beginning of verse 26, beginning of verse 27, both talking about ministry of Christ, or the Messiah. So, verse 27, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. One week, that's talking about the 70th week, because he comes after the 69 weeks. So, let's establish the dates now. 457 B.C. is the beginning date. Decree for Ezra to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. So, uh, 69 weeks later, that's what, 483 days or years. What year does that land us? Remember, there's no zero year. Some of you probably already know. A.D. 27. That's the date, or I should say the, the autumn. The autumn of A.D. 27. That's the date that is, a, that is recognized and understood to be the date of the baptism of Christ. And you can read in um, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Yeah, why don't we go there? Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Can someone read that? 14 and 15. Verse 15 says, And the time is fulfilled in my Bible. And her Bible says, The time has come. Either way, we see that Jesus had an understanding of some sort of time. He, had, he understood that the time is fulfilled. The time has come for something. And what is that time? Well, Daniel chapter 9 tells us, The time has come for him to confirm the covenant with many for one week. So he begins his ministry by saying, the time has come. I am on schedule, on time. Not like a lot of us for, uh, for Thursday night Bible study. No, just joking. <laughs> but um, he was on time. So he mentioned, the time has come. The time is fulfilled. So he begins, and in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. In the Gospel of John, he says several times, the hour has come. And that is talking about, um, again, the time is fulfilled. The hour has come. The time is now here to do something, to fulfill something. 
And based on Daniel chapter 9, in the midst of the week, right on schedule, Jesus says, I'm on time. I am fulfilling the antitypical role of the sacrifice to pay the atonement for sin. So in the midst of the week, he was cut off. That's when he was cut off, right? In the midst of the week. And then, it also says he causes the sacrifice and the oblations to cease. When he died, the temple veil between the holy and the most holy place ripped from top to bottom. Sanctuary services were nullified, void. doesn't mean anything anymore. However, outwardly, the Jewish people still worshipped at the temple, still made sacrifices until AD 70. But all throughout that time, when Christ was crucified, three and a half years after 27 AD, that lands us in the spring of 31 AD, when he was crucified. During all that time, it was meaningless because heavenly sanctuary was already instituted, sacrifice was already paid, type had already met anti-type in that sense. So, Jesus was on time. 31 AD, he was crucified. Three and a half years into his ministry, he was crucified. But yet, he confirms the covenant with many for one week. So there's still three and a half years left. What, what was that? Now we know that you can read in the um, book of Acts. That book of Acts, you can divide it neatly into two parts. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways you can divide it, but you divide it into two parts. The first part of the book, the first few chapters, chapters 1 through 7, is almost completely dealing with, in fact, I think it is completely dealing with, Jews. On the day of Pentecost, there were Jews that were at the, at the, at the temple worshipping. And this three and a half years after Christ died and, and was resurrected, the covenant was confirmed by His disciples for three and a half years more. And you can see, in fulfillment of, of God's timing, Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save the lost. Yes, but He also says, I am come to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. And He also says to the disciples, I am paraphrasing now, don't go out to the Gentiles. He says, go to the children of Israel first. And that is to confirm the covenant with God's people in the conclusion of this 490 years. And then, in the, at the end of these three and a half years, we see the grand event. We see Stephen being stoned by the Sanhedrin. And he, he, as he's being stoned, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And we remember in chapter 7, and the judgment was set, and that takes place when the Ancient of Days sat down. The Ancients of Days did sit, and the judgment was set. So, judgment began when he sat down. So, when he stands up, judgment is over. So, as a as sort of a symbolic type of way, a type of judgment was closed on the Israel people. That was in fulfillment of the 70-week prophecy. Stephen saw Jesus standing, signifying, time has come, this is the end. Judgment is on, on your people, is, is now over. And very interesting, in chapter 8, we have the famous story of the, of the um, Apostle Philip. You remember what story I'm talking about? The Ethiopian eunuch. The very next chapter, gospel, immediately is going to the, is going to the Gentiles. Angel comes down to Philip, go down to the way that's to the south from Jerusalem that goes through Gaza. It's desert. He's just walking in the desert. 
And then suddenly, he sees the chariot, Ethiopian eunuch. He runs over to him. Do you understand what you're saying? Uh, what you're reading? And he explains to him, beginning in Isaiah chapter 53, expounding to him from the scriptures the understanding of the Messiah. So immediately after Stephen was stoned in chapter 7 of Acts, the rest of the book of Acts is the gospel going to the Gentiles, going to the Gentiles, going to the Gentiles. And ever since, God's people now is his spiritual Jews, spiritual Israel, those who accept him by faith. Alright, so that is the end of the 490 years. That takes place in A.D. 34 with the stoning of Stephen. Alright, so we see all of these things are critical in terms of this prophecy being on time. So all of these things coming of um, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem takes place on time. In fact, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, is, it finished in 49 years. That finished on time. You can read Nehemiah. And then the Messiah came. He was anointed on time. He was crucified on time. Sacrifice of oblations caused to cease on time. Covenant confirmed with many for one week on time. So what should we expect about the 2300 days? It's going to be on time. And it was on time. And so 2300 days, beginning at 457 B.C., 2300 days in the future, take out the zero year, lands us in 1844. And we already established that the cleaning, cleansing of the sanctuary is specifically language dealing with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement on, in the year 1844 was on October 22. So these simple ways we can just establish, set the dates for why we believe um, in these things. Now, in conclusion, let's look at a few things uh, at the end here. It says in verse 26, And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, what is that talking about? Let me ask you this question. Who's that prince that will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary? Who is it? Based on, let me give you a hint, Daniel chapter 8. That's exactly right. The king of fierce countenance. Kings and princes, many times it's used synonymously, especially in the time period when this was uh, translated. So after the Messiah was cut off, not for himself, the people of the prince that shall come, or the people of the king of fierce countenance will come, to destroy the city and the sanctuary. So now we know what time period that is. Okay? And the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Now that center, that's, that middle phrase, I'll be perfectly honest, the one that says, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, I'm still studying that. I still don't have any solid, conclusive evidence as to what that flood is, but I encourage you to, to study that out. Yeah, I was expecting your hand to go up. <laughs> um, yeah, this is uh, actually very consistent with the refinements of other scriptures. Uh huh. Other times when you have the Native Army, a couple of good examples is like Jeremiah 46. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Egypt rises up like a flood, mm. rises chariots and horses. Sure. 
Yeah, that visually we can really see that the flood just washing and just wiping things out. Good. That's definitely consistent with what what we're studying and what we've seen in the past. So, the end thereof shall be with flood, and unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, let me just put, try to put that in my own words. At the end of the war, there will be desolations. That's all that is saying. But it is enlarged in verse 27. It is enlarged in verse 27. Okay, so let's go to verse 27. He causes sacrifice and oblation to cease. And verse, uh, it says, And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make a desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, this is rather a little bit tough to get our fingers wrapped around, I believe. But let me try to help you out. I looked at um, the New King James Version and this is what, let me just read that simple phrase there. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Now this is this is simply to differentiate. It says here, for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make a desolate. That he that pronoun is what really makes things confusing because it sounds like it's talking about Messiah who is confirming the covenant. Well, well, we know he's not the one that causes abominations, you know. So that he must be someone else. And looking at verse 26, this is talking about the prince that shall come. Does that make sense? The prince that shall come. For the overspreading of abominations, the prince or the king of fierce countenance, we might even say, he shall make it desolate. Or in the New King James, it says, on the wings of abomination comes one who makes desolate. Or we can say, this man comes with abominations in order to cause desolation. Another term that we've already used in the past is the abomination of desolation. That's exactly what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 24, verse, um, let me double check my, 15, that's right, verse 15, I almost said 13. Verse 15, it says, Know therefore and understand, you know, that the coming of the abominations as spoken of by the prophet Daniel. This is what he's pointing to. The abomination, so we can simply say, the abomination of desolation shall come. And it is related to the king of fierce countenance, which is also called the prince that shall come, in verse 26, that shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So let's just, let's just leave that for now. There's so much we can say about just abomination of desolation. And um, that may have to wait until next week, because I think, um, yeah, we're running out of time. But the abomination of desolation shall come. And that is synonymous with, in verse 26, the prince that come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the desolation that's, th that's talked about. And just looking in the future, that's talking about AD 70, destruction of Jerusalem. But then, this is enlargement. Enlargement that I was talking about from verse 26. 
at the end of verse 27, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Even until the consummation. That word consummation, I looked it up in the Strong's lexicon, and the definition, let me read what it lists. It says, completion, termination, full end, complete destruction, consumption, annihilation. So, this consummation is not necessarily a good thing. The consummation, or we can say, I like the word annihilation, or the destruction, the termination of, or let, let's just, let me follow what this is saying. So, this annihilation that is determined will be poured upon the desolate. And if you look in the margin for desolate, what's that word? Desolator. It is poured out upon the desolator. So we can say desolations, which is synonymous with annihilation, destruction, all of that. Desolation shall be poured out upon the desolator in the end. So the final promise that is given in chapter 9 is that in the end, the desolator, this power that has come laying waste to God's city and his sanctuary, he will come to desolation. He will be destroyed. He will be annihilated. He will be brought to a complete end, a consummation. And this is talking about the kingdom of Rome's, you know, in a broad sense, in all of its entirety, both phases, pagan and papal, especially when we look in connection with chapter 8 chapter 7. Desolation shall be poured upon the desolate. That is the promise that ends this, this chapter and also this section of chapter 8 and 9. And so this is the end of chapter 9. And let's recap real quickly. So we look at, we looked at the connection. Let's just, let's just hit the main points in closing in review. Chapter 8 and chapter 9 integrally connected. They cannot be separated. A couple reasons. We can, let's just really boil this down. Chapter 8, we know the focal point, 2300 days. Sanctuary shall be cleansed. Christ's high priestly ministry in the sanctuary. Chapter, chapter 9, highlight is 70 weeks, which, uh, which predicts the coming of the Messiah and his ministry and his death. So these two chapters integrally bring together the ministry of the gospel, of salvation in Christ's ministry on earth and then his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. These two things. Cannot miss that. That is one connection. Another connection, Daniel's misunderstanding. We remember that. Daniel thought that 2300 days, this king of fierce countenance, he thought this was just going to just annihilate God's people. He lost sight of the, the 70 weeks or uh, 70 years prophecy. He thought God was going to extend the, 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 the captivity. He wasn't sure about that. So chapter 9, he's praying for God to, to turn his wrath away from his people, to forgive and to reinstitute his people as his chosen nation. And angel Gabriel comes to clear up the misunderstanding and to help him understand what he did not understand in chapter 8. That's the other connection. So these connections we already see. You know, these these two chapters, they're linked. And also, you can also even look into the word vision. I, mean, I didn't even talk about this. 
But um, the word vision, just maybe I should just let you study that out. Just look up the word vision in chapter 8 and chapter 9. That is a critical link also um, for all of you Hebrew buffs out there. You can look into that. Chapters 8, chapter 9. And then the beginning date both starts with 457, decree of Artaxerxes to Ezra to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So, 2300 days after uh, 457 B.C. is A.D. 1844. October 22 is the Day of Atonement for that year. And that is the Day of Atonement. The beginning of the antitypical Day of Atonement. Oh, and I just thought of this. Chapter 8 is talking about the um, meeting of type and antitype of courtyard service. And as well as Christ's high priestly ministry in the holy place. And then in chapter uh, chapter 8, it's talking about the initiation or the antitype of the most holy place ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. And so the Day of Atonement is represented in chapter 8. So these things, I know this is very more intellectual, just facts, information, but it is very key. Important, because let me just say this and then I'll, I'll close for real now. This topic of the 2300 days, investigative judgment, cleansing of the sanctuary, it is, this is the pillar by which our church stands or falls. And if we do not understand this, I dare say that we are not prepared to be sealed by God. And we will receive the mark of the beast. I am dead serious. Because this, this prophecy and this, the, the topic of the investigative judgment, it is, it is the one thing that sets us apart. It is the message that makes us distinct. It is the message that, that you know, God gave to us to proclaim to a dying world. This is the last message. And if we don't understand it, and if we don't preach it, you know, we're not going to be ready and God will have to raise someone else to do it. And let me just give you a word of warning. This doctrine is under attack from without and within. So we have to understand it. We have to be grounded not just in dates and figures and people's names and all of this, but we need to be able to explain it. And we need to, mo most importantly, literally make an end of transgression in our lives, make an end of sins, to make reconciliation of iniquities, bring in everlasting righteousness, anoint the most holy in our hearts. That's the message that we need to live in order for this you know, doctrine or this system of belief to really make sense in the world. And that's only where the loud cry can go to the world and this message can be completed. So I want to encourage you, inspire you. Do not give up faith in the 2300 days. I mean... People will try to shake you. They'll try to intimidate you. I've had those experiences. But do not give in. <laughs> study, study, study. Just go to the Bible. Go to the Spirit of Prophecy. Because this will, and I might even say this, I will venture to say that you will, at one point or another, face opposition on this very point, this exact point of your faith. People might never talk to you about the state of the dead. Well, they probably will, but that's possible. 
They might never talk to you about diet reform. They might never talk to you about even the Sabbath. But I believe that if the devil is going to play his cards the way that is going to make the most number of Adventists fall, he will bring this to the forefront. And the 2300 days is critical. Absolutely critical. We've lost a lot of good people over it. But let's hope none of us are going to fall into that trap. So with that, I guess I ended up preaching a little in the end there. But let's kneel for prayer. Father in heaven, we recognize the importance of the time that we live in and the time as foretold by Daniel 8.14. It is already fulfilled in 1844 and now we are living in this critical time of earth's history. Help us, Lord, to not just know intellectually, to be able to prove and, and rebut every single argument, but help us, Lord, literally to live a life worthy of standing in the judgment and that we will be able to truly make an end of transgression, end of sins, to anoint the most holy in our hearts, bring in everlasting righteousness, for us to live as though we are, are sick and tired of this world and that we are ready for the Lord to come. Lord, help us to be meek and humble as we share these important truths with others and help us to remember that we are but dust and that without your Spirit we can do nothing. So send your Spirit now as we go our separate ways. Protect us, motivate us to continue to study, to look deeper into your Word and into your truth, that we may be part of the very elect that will stand in the end of time. Please be with us tonight and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.